Well, welcome back to our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, we are in chapter 28. If you're following with the notes from the lecture notes from last week, we're going to pick it up at the bottom of page 183. Before we do, I'd like to sing with you Psalm 8 on page 12 in your Psalter. Uh, I, before we start, I'd like to say um, I'm encouraged. I hope you're encouraged. You know, we're kind of rounding the bend here. Chapter 28, uh, we'll do the Lord's Supper next week. Church and councils, we're not too far away from the latter chapters on end times. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're not too far away from the end. We're in chapter 28. I think there's 33 chapters. The last few are a little shorter. Uh, and it'll be fun to kind of end in a, a big topic, a topic of eschatology, but really for our encouragement. Anyways, just to encourage you, we are nearing the end of the study. Uh, although, you know, probably be a month or so. I want to encourage you, again, if there's anything we've studied that you'd really like to go back and hone in on with a special study on Wednesdays, uh, be very happy to do that. If not, I, I do have a few thoughts about what I might do next, but I love uh, taking care of special requests, especially on a Wednesday night. We haven't really done that Wednesday night. We've done it for sermons. But um, anyhow, we're getting close, but we're going to pick it up on page 183, section 4 of the Westminster Confession, chapter 28. But before we do... I'd like to open to Psalm 8 and sing as we did last week together, page 12. And I want to point out to you verse 2 again. This is why we're coming here. From infants and from suckling's mouth thou didst strength ordain. For thy foes caused that so thou mightest the avenging foe restrain. What I want to highlight is the first part. The first part is what Jesus quotes in Matthew 21. When they're giving him a hard time, do you hear the children uh, singing to you, Hosanna to the son of David, blessing you who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're reflecting the adults when he rode in on a donkey, but now he's in the temple. And they're like, these kids are, they're recognizing we got a problem here, they think, because they're acknowledging you to be the Messiah by what they're singing. And he says, well, of course, haven't you heard? This is Matthew 21. And then he quotes this verse. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, Thou hast perfected praise. That's how Jesus applies it. It says ordained strength in our text. But recognize that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, thou hast ordained praise. He's acknowledging the praise of children, that it's legitimate, and they ought to have the same faith as children, right? Such is the kingdom of heaven, he has, he has taught. So uh, we want to recognize that as we come back to the text, to the chapter on baptism tonight, and we give our attention a lot of our attention to why do we baptize our children, our covenant children in the church. And this would be an important verse. I'll come back to it, but I'd like to sing it together. And um, uh, I have memories of Rachel and Olivia when we sang in the RP church, a different Psalter. Um, we pretty much had it memorized, and it was always neat to sing together. It's been a while. But uh, notice how it also opens and closes. How excellent in all the earth, Lord, our Lord is thy name. And there is this childlike wonder in God and dependence upon him. And we pray that's what the Lord would give us. The message I preached on that text, Matthew 21, quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, was worship Jesus with a childlike faith and worship with your children. Well, let's do that now together. We'll sing all the verses, but have a special focus on verse 2 for our study tonight. Da, 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 da. How excellent in all the earth, Lord, our Lord is thy name. 
thy glory far advanced above the starry frame. From infants and from sucklings mouth thou didst strength ordain. For thy foes caused that so thou might the avenging foe restrain. When I look upon to the heavens which thine own fingers framed unto the moon and to the stars which were by thee so kind to him shouldst be. For thou a little lower hast him than the angels made, with glory and with dignity thou crowned hast his head. Of thy hands works thou mayst him, Lord, all under feet didst lay. All sheep and oxen, yea, and beasts that in the field do stray. Fowls of the air, fish of the all that pass through the same. How excellent in all the earth, Lord, our Lord, is thy name. Amen. I notice we have a few folks that have it memorized. Very nice. Um, I, love, I love seeing that verse 8 again, if you don't mind me uh, uh, taking a sidetrack for a moment. I know I shared with you last week. Uh, we've been getting a fish tank going and going through the challenges of what it is to start a tank from scratch. I just got another fish and it looks like everything's fine. They're all going to be fine and they're just so beautiful to watch. We got these two grommies. One has these beautiful stripes. The other one is kind of red and blue flame. That's the new one. He scared us when we first had him in the bag. That guy looked like he was going to attack us, let alone the other fish. But he's, he's calmed down. He's having fun. And then we got these two mollies. They're Dalmatian mollies. One's black with white spots. One's uh, white with black spots. And they're just so beautiful. And they're just so fun to watch. You know, they just kind of glide in the water. It's really just incredible. And I was thinking about them. We went to the Y a couple nights ago, and I was kind of... Don't worry, I wasn't pretending to be a fish. They weren't jumping out of the pool and calling the authorities. But, but I mean, I was just kind of on my back and messing around with the hands and experimenting. Like, it's just kind of incredible what you can do just with a little bit like the fins of the fish. And yet they can just, it's just incredible to watch them. It's like water ballet. You know, they can just so smooth and elegant. But I think about that verse here in Psalm 8. It just praises the Lord with a childlike faith about the fish. 
It was so neat. One night I was looking at them. It was real late. I was kind of tired. And I just sat, I got by the tank and I'm looking at them. And I'm telling you, three of them came right up to me and they just kept looking at me like a dog or something. And I felt like they were looking into my soul and we had this moment, you know. I know, I, I, I got to get out more. But, <laughs> but it was really beautiful. <laughs> I said, are you guys actually aware of me? You know, because fish, I don't tend to think they are. But it, it was really cool. <laughs> I don't know why the one guy wouldn't come up and talk to me, but the other three did. It was, I'm telling you, it wasn't like just kind of a little bit and like, see you later. No, they're just kind of there and, how you doing, buddy? How you doing? You know, I mean, they were all... And they don't usually swim like that. They're just all in a row looking right at me. It was so cool. So, but, you know, one thing we've been saying a lot of these beautiful fish, they're so gorgeous with their colors and things and the variety. But then the other thing is the engineering. You know, again, it's amazing how they can move in that water. It's incredible how God's made them. And it's a reminder to us to marvel in God as our Father and how amazing he is as an engineer and as an artist. Just so tremendous and it's such a joy to have that to be able to just rejoice in the maker of them and God and and uh, as Psalm 8 opens and closes with so anyways as we're singing about the praise coming out of the mouths of babes uh, we want to remember that we want to always pray that the Lord gives us a childlike faith not childishness but a childlike faith in how we and how we approach and worship him may he bless us to feel so excited as we look back on our baptisms uh, and and just think about that he has called us his children, and we can call him our father. Okay, let me put this down. And uh, since I belabored on that text a little bit, I think I'll let Psalm 8, verse 2, referencing Matthew 21, be our scripture that we open with this evening. And, of course, uh, each part of what I read you has its scripture-proof text, and you can go back to them. But we're picking up it again at page 183, the bottom of it, where it's section 4. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time here tonight, though I intend to finish. Uh, but actually, as I went through the rest of it, there's some other controversial stuff, too, I forgot, kind of forgot about. So stay tuned. There's lots of interesting things, um, uh, some other things that there's some strong disagreements on. So not that I want to, I, I'm always intended that you would have resolve with where we're teaching, but just so you know. And uh, of course, like any good movie, there's lots of tension and controversy, but there should be a good payoff of resolve at the end. So if I don't give you good resolve, just stay in your seats while I run to the car before you get up and I can screech out of here, okay? But hopefully we'll all be on the same page at the end here. Let's start on page 183, section four of the Confession of Faith, chapter 28 of Baptism. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Uh, so we're recognizing, first of all, those who profess the faith. But we want to recognize particularly that has in view someone who's come out of the world, out of false religion and into the true religion of Christianity the first time professing a faith. And then in that context, now being part of the covenant people, their children they would have within the covenant family of the church they would be recognized as Israelites, as it were, and not Philistines. Okay, that's kind of the idea. We'll get into it. Um, you know, when we have family worship, we don't excuse them to the living room when, until we're done. That's the idea. They're part of the covenant community, okay? Uh, so a lot of our focus will be on why we baptize our covenant children because that is the number one reason people who visit and are excited and stay for a while, if they do leave, this is, this is the number one reason. 
because they don't actually ever study with us. They usually do have children. They're just really, frankly, a lot of times it's kind of connected to the idea of what we'll get to soon. Um, they don't really recognize church membership, you know, in the visible church. That relates to the Lord's Supper, too. The other thing, again, is honoring the Sabbath day, keeping it holy, not working, committing it to worship all the day. But this is, this is the big one. So this is why I'm giving you so much stuff, because uh, for anyone that might not be sure, I'm hoping to be thorough. I know I'm long-winded. I know I get in a lot of detail, but my intention always is to be thorough. My intention is to be able to give a resolve to a thing. Uh, that's the intention of Scripture, right? Whether someone thinks I'm wrong or right, the intention is to know what God wants and have resolve with it. So I'd like to give you just, and by the way, I'm not giving you everything. I, I do give you a lot of extra readings at the end if you want to get into it more, but I try to give enough that I think should give, give resolve. But Packer says, back to the notes, J.I. Packer says, the ongoing debate, and there's a big one, over infant baptism is about God's way of defining church. That's really it. The doctrine of the church and understanding of the church and the visible church has so much to do with how we understand baptism and then particularly why we would baptize our infants. Letter A, I've broken it down into different letters again because I'm wanting to cover a number of things that come up related to this. Okay, So letter A in the notes, covenant children should be baptized due to their privilege of being born into covenant family representation. The Westminster Larger Catechism 166 says, infants of Christian parents are to be baptized because they are, quote, within the covenant. Why are they to be baptized? Because they're born into the context of the covenant. I can't remember in my notes. I don't think I do. It's in my sermons that I reference. Why is Abraham an American? Because he was born in America. He didn't choose it. You can choose it if you're not an American, right? Fernanda's working on it. She's working on citizenship. You become a naturalized citizen. But why are Gabriel and Gideon citizens and they don't have to go through any kind of natural? Because they were born. They're naturally born. They have anything to do with it. And that's the same thing with the church. We are born into a situation or born outside of it or born into something else, right? Um, uh, it's all about being born into the context of the covenant, which Old Testament, I don't think anybody really can argue that. The problem is they don't seem to see the, the connectedness of that in the New Testament, and we'll, we'll look at that. But that's really the big thing to understand, okay? And we're talking visible church, okay? We're talking the outward visible church, you're going to have plenty of disclaimers and warnings about not taking your baptism for granted. Um, I'll share some examples with you, okay? Back to the notes. Spear, Wayne Spear explains, quote, the case for infant baptism does not rest on a few proof texts, but on an understanding that God deals with his people by way of covenant. Now, hopefully you're really picking up on the, the, uh, the uh, review, the repetition of the word covenant. Remember, chapter 7, we spent a lot of time on the covenant, right? Extra weeks, and we had paper articles written from it. Uh, because if you remember, I quoted a lot of things to you to demonstrate we understand the Bible through the doctrine of the covenant. That's the way we interpret the Bible is by the doctrine of covenant, okay? So that, therefore, recognize that's coming up. We understand baptism through the lens of covenant theology, okay? 
I'm going to try to be careful not to review that chapter or review what we studied last week on the sacraments, but remember that all informs what we're discussing tonight, okay? Let me also say this. I give you a lot of great footnotes. I want to read them so bad, but I don't want to keep you here for 300 years. So uh, I'm going to encourage you, if you really want to wrestle with this or really want to dive into it, I've given you a lot of stuff over the years. When I find some good stuff, I put it in there. I'll, I'll highlight a, high, uh, a footnote or two, but I'm... I'm going to skip a lot of footnotes tonight, but there's some really good stuff on this, okay? So if you want to get into it more. Top of page 184. In Luke 18, 16 to 17, Christ says to suffer the little children. Literally, the word is infants in the Greek. To come to him. Let the infants come to me. Don't keep them away. And to come into his kingdom like them, the same word for child with uh, the baby John and Jesus in Luke 1 and 2. So when it speaks about the child, talking about the baby John, baby Jesus in Luke 1 and 2, it's that same word as suffer the little children to come to me. Let the little babies come to me. Now, that doesn't prove in itself they should receive the sign, but let's recognize that. And remember, the disciples were trying to keep the children away. No, 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 no. And then what did he do? I think it'll be in the notes. He laid his hands on them. He blessed them. That was a formal blessing, by the way. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that, I'm pretty sure, in the notes. I've reviewed them, but then I forget what I reviewed. <laughs> Letter B. Genesis 17, 7 to 9. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee. Now, this is to Abraham, right? This is the establishing of the formal covenant people. And not just to thee, it says, and to thy seed after thee. Seed, children, means children. Those who will be your children after you. Your family heritage. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, thou shalt keep my covenant therefore. Thou and thy seed after thee in their generation. Now in Genesis 17, verses 10 to 11 and following, Abraham is to keep covenant. How is he to keep covenant? By circumcising his children. So recognize covenant and circumcision are almost used interchangeably. The way Abraham keeps covenant is to circumcise his children. The mark of God's covenant on him and his seed. Where does his seed come from? From what has to be circumcised. God is saying, I'm going to build my church through my people. Not just outside my people, that's certainly involved um, and also recognize that it, the circumcision recognizes a sense of cleansing, the shedding of blood. God's going to make a pure holy seed through his chosen covenant family line out of a wicked, unclean world. Okay, But this is important to recognize the overlap of this idea of marking the children of the covenant with the sign of God's covenant. That's going to be significant to understand that carries through to the New Testament. It just changes because Christ has come, so there's no more shedding of blood. Okay? In Genesis, oh, I read that part. Uh, Abraham had faith, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And so he was circumcised as a sign of being God's under God's faithfulness, Genesis 17. But so was his whole household circumcised. That is the men, of course, representing the whole. Genesis 17, 10 and following, verse 13 says, He that is 
born in thy house has to be circumcised. Well, why would he be circumcised? That's the mark of being part of the church. But, you know, don't they have to come to an age of accountability and say for themselves, God is my God, the God of Abraham is my God, and then they can be circumcised? I mean, that would be the consistent argument to come from the Baptist view back into the Old Testament, right? God says anyone born in your house receives this sign, right? Eight days. So we see Christ was circumcised in eight days, right? In the temple. Back to the notes. God is a God of our families. Maybe one of the reasons this is such a problem, or maybe it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario, is because families are disintegrating. Right? In the church, outside of the church. Even just the sense of family is really disintegrating. So the idea that anyone in the family is somehow tied and significant in a special way, we're losing the sense of family, even in the church. Uh, but it, it's huge in the Bible, and God is a God of our families. I mean, our children are... I get emotional every time when the kids are baptized uh, because I administer the baptism of my most recent children. I have to keep it together a little better. But, I mean, it's emotional for me. It's such an incredible thing that's happening. And what God is saying, he's the God of my children. A new sign is given, but the command and significance remain the same. Thus, the overlap of terms in the New Testament transition. This is behind Acts chapter 2 for what follows next. So really keep Genesis 17 in view. I will be your God and the God of your seed, okay? the God of your children. Therefore, mark your children with the sign of the covenant of the visible church. Okay? There's a distinction between the visible and invisible church. We have discussed that already. You can see the diagram. Uh, not all Israel are Israel. Nonetheless, visible outward were to treat them like the visible church. Okay? So I, I think I would like to read with you Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39. Would you open your Bible there with me, please? Okay. You want to hear a really bad dad joke? Just came to mind right now. I should keep it to myself. My kid are, kids are already trying to hide under the pews. So I just noticed one of the cover pages in my Bible is wrinkled. It got folded up a little bit. I'm like, oh, man, because it's my new Bible. But I'm definitely going to do this because it was given to me for Father's Day gifts. So I'm going to give a silly father's joke. Okay? So I said to myself, oh, man, the page is all folded up in a straight. And it says, well, that was bound to happen. And I wasn't trying to think of it, but that's actually pretty funny, right? That's a nice little pair, little, it was bound, you know, book is, okay, all right, don't quit my day job, okay. Acts chapter 2, uh, thanks for keeping the doors locked, security so they can't leave, okay. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39. Okay, <laughs> Isaac just got it. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> One of the reasons I knew Fernanda was the one for me is she laughs at all my dumb jokes. So, You want to hear? Okay, I'm sorry. It's a, it, I wouldn't do this at a sermon on the Lord's Day, but can I interject one more thing? I like to try to amuse you, give you a little levity for fun on a Wednesday night. Um, so Fernanda calls me a week or so. She laughs so hard. I said, yeah, she's definitely supposed to be married to me because everyone else rolls their eyes when I do this. Or they just like, huh? She calls me on the phone at church, and she's calling me because I forgot my phone at home, So I, but I can see that it's her, you know. And this is how I answer. Now, I'm borrowing this from Steve Martin in a movie, but I always thought it was so funny. She's the only one that ever laughed for me. She laughed so hard, I'm like, yeah, we're supposed to be married. I'm ruining it already. I'm, I'm good. Okay. But I said, hello, you've reached Grant Van Leuven. I am here. I've answered the phone, and you may begin speaking at the beep. And then you wait, and beep. 
beep. She's like, oh, you're so funny. You know, she laughed so hard. I said, you shouldn't be laughing, but it's great. Okay. Thanks for tolerating me. Acts chapter 2, 30, nobody's going to be here next week. <laughs> no, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 39. Again, this is really connected to Genesis 17. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Promises to you and to your children. And that's the context of be baptized. Be baptized, okay? I'm trying not to answer objections. We're going to get there. I'm just going to stick to the text. Okay, so, uh, so letter C, I want to break down some of that text to see the connection with Genesis 17. This is at Pentecost, okay? And uh, Exodus 23, 16, the Feast of Harvest. It's related getting to the, to the Passover meal. It's when young men had to go to Jerusalem away from their families or bringing their families with them. Uh, but Pentecost means 50 days, that is, uh, after Passover, 50 days after Passover. That's why they call it Pentecost, okay? Now, remember, they were all dispersed, but they had to come to Jerusalem for these feasts, and the men especially had to bring sacrifices uh, to the temple, okay? And God's covenant people attend this, and they are Peter's audience. Thus, God's covenant is the context, okay? Who is Peter speaking to? He is speaking to fellow Jews who are in Jerusalem for the... the, the um, uh, the, the Passover, the Pentecost, uh, 50 days uh, after Passover, excuse me, the Feast of Harvest. So he's speaking to covenant-minded Jews who've come from all different places in the dispersion, come to Jerusalem because they are Jews. And they understand themselves according to, they are sons of Abraham. And they mark their children with the sign of the covenant. And that is who he is speaking to. Keep that in mind. Due to the Jewish audience he's speaking to, God-fearing Jews, uh, really devoted Jews, right? Uh, cha uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 22, he's speaking to devoted Jews. Peter appeals to the Old Testament scriptures about what is happening in Christ right now. So he quotes Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse six, in verse 16. He quotes Psalm 16 in verses 25 to 32, and I've preached on that. And uh, that is where he is preaching a lot of Psalm 16, and he's saying, you all have seen that Jesus has risen from the dead, therefore he's the Messiah of Psalm 16, because that's what David said. And he says in this chapter, David knew he was a prophet, and he knew he was talking about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And therefore, you all know this, and so it's Christ, it's the Messiah, just Jesus is the Messiah, because he's clearly raised from the dead. We all see it, we all know it. But notice all these connections to the Old Testament, the covenant people, the fulfillment of these covenant promises in Christ. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 2, he quotes in verses 34 to 35, The Lord has said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Then verse 4, elsewhere is quoted, the number one quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament, what? 
Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? So all of this is Old Testament. He's preaching to the Jews about the king of the Jews. And they, cover, they mark their children with the sign of the covenant. That's what the covenant God always expects of them. Okay? So keep that in mind in the context here. Letter, uh, number three under letter C. Jews are children of the Abrahamic covenant that we saw in Genesis 17. Verse 39 of Acts chapter 2 says the promise is to them and quote to your children or to your house. As many as the Lord our, our God calls. You see it's still a family affair. He's applying the fact that Jesus Christ has come. And so uh, there needs to be a baptism as the sign of the beginning of the New Testament church. Same church as the Old Testament, but new signs for it, so they need to receive these signs. Christ has come, and so remember the, the Lord's Supper we'll, have, we'll look at next week was the Passover meal, but Christ turns it into the Lord's Supper. We actually read about it in our reading in the evening last week, last Lord's Day. And so everything doesn't just go out, it adjusts. And so he's saying, now you need to be marked with a sign of church membership according to how it adjusts in the New Testament with Christ. We're giving a testimony to Christ has come to fulfill the covenant. But he's saying this to Jews. Um, And when he quotes uh, in Acts 2.17, when he quotes Joel 2.28, he's saying God will pour out his spirit on, quote, their sons and daughters. So he quotes Joel and says, this is a sign of when Christ comes. Not only must we all be baptized, but that's what's supposed to happen. The Holy Spirit will pour out on the sons and daughters. And then Isaiah, uh, number five, Isaiah 44, verses three to five says, I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed. Remember Genesis 17. This is a prophecy of Christ. And my blessing upon thine offspring. That means children. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourse. One shall say, I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. You see, these Jewish men would never conceive of going back to their wives and children and for the first time ever in the history of the covenant people of God, leaving them out of God's covenant representation, that is God's sign of ownership of his people. It's like he'd be going back and say, children, I know that you were circumcised, boys, you were, I know that representatively the children are marked, but you may no longer be considered part of the covenant family. Now that Christ has come, you no longer may bear the sign of the church. Can you imagine? That doesn't make any sense, and they would never understand this. What they are being told is go back and mark your whole family now with a new sign, the new method of what the same significance is. Letter D. Acts 16, 1 Corinthians 1, 16, use the word households of Lydia and the jailer Stephanus uh, when they were baptized. The Greek for household is elsewhere house, home, or family. Titus 1.11. 1 Timothy 3 verse 4 says an elder must, quote, manage his own household, keeping his children under control. Hebrews 3 verse 5, the same word is house, which Moses served, and now Jesus rules over. Were there children in the house of Moses? 
Oh yeah, they were in the tents with their parents. They were passing through the Red Sea being baptized. Remember last week when we studied the mode? They were baptized in the ark, right? I mean, the children were there. And now the house is Christ. God's house has children. I mean, really, the Father, God's house doesn't have children? Are you kidding me? Sproul points out that the Swiss New Testament scholar Oscar Coleman has argued that the term oikos, that Greek word for household, refers specifically to infants. And you can look at the footnote there and get more details. Why am I emphasizing this, what the word oikos means when it refers to house? Because in Acts 16, the jailer in Lydia, it says they and their households were baptized. And... and, and, and uh, this particular theologian, R.C. Sproul, highlights says it inherently intends to mean including infants. Okay? Letter E. Deuteronomy 6, 7 to 10. Deuteronomy 11, 9 to 21. Teach your children. We're going to get there, Lord willing, this year. <laughs> it's been a while. I'm really trying to catch up and get back to Deuteronomy. But make disciples of them, just like any adult who would enter the covenant community church. Now think about this. Remember what I highlight when we were in Deuteronomy 5 reading the Ten Commandments as we alternate every other week with Exodus 20. What do you see at the beginning of Deuteronomy 5? He's pointing them back to Mount Sinai, the first giving of the law, Exodus 20, and he says, this wasn't as much for your parents as it was for you when you were children. Now you're adults about to go into the promised land with your covenant children. It still applies because it was for you as children. It wasn't just for your parents, okay? Uh, make disciples of your children. So Christ commands to do the same. Matthew 28, 19. Teach, that means make disciples of all nations. And then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we thus continue to disciple our children, and we thus continue to dedicate them with God's covenant family sign. I want to say that. I'm going to talk about the idea of dedication later. But it's not uncommon for Baptist church who argue against infant baptism to offer up their children in a dedication service. And my argument to them is, why would you do that? Show me the scripture where you're supposed to do that in worship service. And don't you understand, that's what baptism is. Okay? Uh, I'm going to get a little more preachy about that in a little bit later in the notes, so I'll wait to do that here. Okay? Um, uh, we thus continue to disciple our children, dedicate them with God's covenant family sign to obey Ephesians 6 verse 4. Bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The great commission is to disciple all nations. Ephesians 6 says that includes your children. You disciple people in the context of covenant, receiving the covenant sign. Oh, we may preach and teach to all, but we disciple those who are in the covenant. There's a formal commitment in both sides. Okay, top of page 185, letter F. I'm going to try to keep rolling um, to, to move through this. Colossians 2, 11 to 12 says, In Christ also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Now, I'm not going to get into the mode issue as we did, as that sounds kind of like Romans 6. You can go in to look and review what we talked about with the mode last week. That It's not talking about mode. It's talking about 
um, the meaning of union in Christ, what baptism is. But notice here, the, the thing I'm, I'm underlining in the text, ye are circumcised with the circumcision ma- made without hands by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. You see how baptism and circumcision are being used interchangeably as the same thing, the same meaning, that is. And Christ is called the circumcision, right? Now, um, oh, sorry, I think I lost my thought there. The, the, the main thing I want you to see is circumcision and baptism are being used interchangeably here because there is a transition with Christ having come. And there's such an overlap of meaning and symbolism because the two sacraments mean the same thing, that those words are used interchangeably. Oh, I know I wanted to say Christ of the circumcision, but literally, what does Paul get into a lot in Galatians? If you think we have to be circumcised, then you have a major problem, right? It's not about being saved. You do not have to be circumcised religiously anymore because the sign has changed to baptism. Otherwise, where would Paul get off saying we shouldn't circumcise our boys anymore? Because we clearly had to until Christ came. Why all of a sudden we don't have to circumcise the boys? Because it's baptism now. The same meaning is there. Okay, And just notice the interchangeable uh, aspect of those words. Now, this is metonymy. Metonymy is a figure of speech. My preaching professor uh, used to drill us on this stuff, and I struggled a lot with this in synecdoche. But there are figures of speech in the scripture, and if we don't recognize their figures of speech, we miss the whole point. Okay, This is metonymy, a figure of speech using one thing to represent another. Okay? Just as in Romans 6, 1 to 6, putting off old, putting on a new man in Christ means identification. It doesn't mean literally we're, you know, I don't know, zipping off our skin and putting, I mean, how do we put on Christ? That's a figurative expression, right? Putting off the old man, putting on Christ, this really is what it's communicating is identification, right? Just as when Rachel goes to Chick-fil-A, she puts off her civilian clothes and she puts on her Chick-fil-A uniform to be recognized as a change. That's the idea. Notice both uses of circumcision and baptism are interchangeable as synonyms for union in Christ. See also Ephesians 2.11. Thus, in the New Testament, it is said that Jesus is Christ, our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. But he's not really the, the literal Passover lamb. He, he is actually what the Passover lamb pointed to. Um, And the minister of circumcision, he's called the minister of circumcision, Romans 15, verse 8. But what does that mean? It's metonymy again, because we know from Galatians, you don't have to be circumcised. And even Paul would argue against it in certain contexts. So we understand circumcision as figurative and baptism as meaning the same thing. And now it is the sign that we do. Quote, and we are the circumcision, Philippians 3, verse 3, right? We were there. And Paul in Philippians is really going after those who are trying to argue that you have to be circumcised. He's going hard after them, that it's only the righteousness of Christ, right? But uh, we are the circumcision, he says, in Christ, right? So what does that mean? It means we're Christians. We're God's covenant people. But we're not literally circumcised. Yeah, Rachel, question. Do you want the mic? Can we pass the mic back so you can... Uh, what I do with it, by the way? Oh, I forgot. I had the mic and then I... Uh, uh, uh. No, no, no. I want to get you on the mic so everyone can hear you, but also it'll help you get you on the recording. Because that way people know what you're asking. So turn it off when you're done and just be ready to pass it if we need it, okay? Okay. Um, So what's your question? If someone is never baptized but lives in 
the river Jesus to be baptized? Like that doesn't affect his salvation, right? To go to heaven because baptism is I'm having fun. That's going to be answered in a following question. So it's a nice segue, but I'm not ready to go there yet. So she's asking, if you are professing Christ, living for Christ, it's a sincere thing. If you're not baptized, that doesn't mean you're not saved, does it? And uh, we're going to address that question specifically with the confession. So thanks for setting me up. All right. And thankfully, it's not one of those questions where I say, oh, I got an easy answer for that. I don't know. No, I had an answer, a good one for this, okay? But it's the confession. Okay. So um, hold on to that, please. Uh, there's an overlap of covenantal terms, the end of letter F. There's an overlap of covenantal terms as the Old Testament transitions into the New Testament in Christ's work, not only with some discontinuity, but also much continuity. Okay, there's a, there's a lot of bringing overlap of meaning uh, into the New Testament. Just, you know, the, a lot of the ceremonial stuff in the Old Testament's gone. Why? Because Christ has come. But the meaning of those things... Fulfilled in Christ still applies, but it's just fulfilled in the true reality of Christ. So we need to recognize there's discontinuity. Things adjust. Some things go away. But there's much continuity also, and I think that's what people miss a lot. Are you raising your hand, Isaac? What's your question? Pass the mic, please. If you ask me a really good but hard question like last week, I'm going to have security throw you out. No, just kidding. Go ahead. If your children... If your children have already been baptized in another church, um, do they have to be baptized again in another church if you go to it? See what I'm doing here? That's going to be answered also. Great. It's going to look like I had my family set me up here, you know. <laughs> it's going to look like an infomercial. Oh, I'm glad you asked. You know, thanks for asking. Here's your $5. No, that, both of those questions are specifically uh, addressed in this confession. So. Um, good question, okay? Uh, but wait for it, okay? Uh, letter G. Based on Genesis 17, God almost killed Moses until his wife marked their son with the sign of church membership. Genesis 4, verses 24 to 26. Uh, before I mentioned my sermon on that years ago when I was preaching through Exodus, what had God just done with Moses before that? Spent a lot of time on it. Oh no, you are going to go and deliver my people. Like he was handpicked, but then he almost kills him on his way to do just that. Because nobody, no leader of the church especially, gets to not do God's commands, including how you're to mark your children with the sign of the covenant. We know this because how does Zipporah, his wife, uh, what does she do? You're a bloody man to me. She circumcises the children and throws it at Moses' feet, and then God doesn't kill him anymore. She understood. We haven't marked our children with the sign of the church, the sign of covenant. And God takes that huge, huge. Especially he's about to deliver a bunch of people out of, with their children. <laughs> you know, out of, maybe, maybe one concern would be you don't have your children marked, you've neglected it, maybe you think you can leave them behind, sell them as slaves. I don't know. You know I'm, I'm just thinking that out loud at the moment. I'm not arguing that's in the scripture. For, but but the, the sermon I preached on that was commit to your children. You see, because baptizing your children is really more about God's commitment to the church and your commitment to your children. And when I first came here and I gave a lesson on Deuteronomy at church camp, somebody came to me afterwards and had a real problem with it. Because he said, he's not here anymore, it has been going a long time. I always thought you'd just leave it up to your children. 
I don't have to. And he just didn't seem to be comfortable with the responsibility that I was teaching. A lot of people do not want to be held accountable. It's up to the, no, it's not. It's up to the parents. Of course, it's up to God and the child does decide and grow in Christ or, or abandon. But it is, it is not something the parents don't have anything to do with. They are significantly supposed to be what God uses primarily to disciple the children as Christians. And he, he really did not like it. But the reason he didn't like it is he understood what it meant. You are committed. You're going to have kids. By the way, I think do we have a problem with fathers not understanding you're going to be a father? That involves commitment. You know, you don't just have a kid. You have to raise the child. Right? Got a fatherhood ser- Father's Day sermon on that a little while ago. All right, back to the notes. Raymond explains, Robert Raymond from New Systematic Theology, the ground of infant baptism is not then presumptive election or presumptive regeneration. What that means is the baptism is not saying we know that they're saved by the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't do that either. We're not presuming we know for sure where they are with the Lord. But rather, the covenant relation in which the child stands and the ordinance or command of God but rather the covenant, or excuse me, I think I lost my play here. The ground of infant baptism is not then presumptive election or presumptive regeneration, but rather the covenant relation in which the child stands and the ordinance or command of God. So I just, I just didn't read that with the right emphasis, so I got confused. Uh, he goes on to say, when reformed paedo-baptists, that means when uh, people who believe children should be baptized, because paedo is the word for child, okay, in Greek, uh, when Reformed Pado baptists are asked, upon what ground do you baptize infants? They should understand that it is sufficient to answer because our infants are covenant children and God has commanded that covenant children receive the sign of the covenant. The church should baptize its infants because God requires that covenant children be baptized and for no other reason. As well, he says, the Old Testament practice of reckoning children among the covenant people of God and having the covenant sign administered to them in infancy is nowhere repealed in the New Testament. That principle of marking our children with a sign of being in the covenant community, there's no place in the New Testament where it says don't do that anymore. It should help to recognize what R.C. Sproul disclaims. Quote, baptism is not a sign of the child's faith. It is a sign of what the child will receive by faith. It is a sign of God's promise, which is received by faith. And of course, it's the same meaning for an adult who's a first-time believer. Letter H, bottom of 185. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and following, and 1 Peter 3, 20 and following, as well as Exodus 24, verses 6 to 8, Notice that whole families are understood to be baptized. Children included by virtue of their being part of the covenant community with Jesus. They didn't say, sorry kids, you got to wait, stay on the beach. Sorry, those Egyptians are coming, but you're not part of the church. The fact that many credo-baptists, now credo means creed, belief, and what that means is we believe you should only be baptized once you profess faith, and only adults could do that is the idea. The fact that many credo-baptists have some kind of, quote, dedication service of their infants shows that all well-exercised believers recognize implicitly what they do not all recognize expressly. That's Roland Ward. Good point. And I was going to share something later in the notes. I'm going to share it here. 
people kind of understand children born in the covenant should be dedicated or acknowledged in some way, right? That's why, that's why a lot of Baptists do dedication services. But here's the thing that's interesting to, for me to recall. When I was in seminary, early in seminary, by the way, I went through seminary for 10 years part-time at night, so it took me a long time. So when I say early in seminary, I had never really had to think a lot about infant baptism. I had been. I had no arguments against it, but I hadn't been forced to have to articulate it. And because I had to go so slowly piecemeal, I hadn't really had classes yet. But I remember after a seminary late at night, we were walking out in the parking lot. A friend of mine, great guy, at that time a Reformed Baptist, he got into the why we shouldn't baptize our children was his argument. And I was talking with him about it, and you know, I wouldn't have been able to reflect this view as well as, as, I, as I do now. But here's something that struck me, and I don't remember if I challenged him or not, uh, or if it just stuck with me later, but no, yeah we, yeah, we did discuss it. I said, well, do you have a dedication service for your children? He said, yeah. I said, well, why would you do that? And his answer was, well, everything we do doesn't have to be in the scriptures. I almost fell on the ground. Why? That's the complete argument of a Baptist. It's not in the scriptures to baptize the children. But you're telling me you can dedicate them with some service that's not ever part of some corporate worship thing in the scriptures that we're told to do? And not only that, I mean, well, we are. That's what baptism is, right? (laughs) But it was amazing to me that he argued we shouldn't baptize our kids, but it's okay to have a dedication service when they're little kids, which is what baptism really is, even though there's not something outside of baptism to allow for that. Oh, well, everything we do doesn't have to be in scripture. That's like... That's your whole argument, right? Now, here's the cool thing, and I had nothing to do with this. Although I think he let me know when it was going to happen. Later, he became a Pado-Baptist and joined my church. I, don't, I wasn't the pastor. I had, you know, I had nothing to do with it at all, but praise the Lord, he actually came. He's an elder now in, that church, in a Reformed Presbyterian church. He believes in it. And when people do come to this conviction, if their children are older, guess what they do? They baptize the children when they join the church. Okay? Um, so, but it's interesting, I, I bring that up particularly, I mean, though it's nice to say the Lord brought him around, so to speak, I think that issue of dedication of the children is significant to draw out, okay? Implicitly, people kind of understand this. Uh, Green clarifies that for a covenant child, quote, in his case, baptism is a rite, R-I-T-E, ceremony, not of initiation, that would be admission, but of recognition, So actually, that's true. When we're baptizing a child, we're not actually admitting them into the church. We're recognizing they've been born into the church, right? Just like we don't have a citizenship ceremony for a little child born in America. They just are. They get a baptism certificate of that fact. And baptism of a child in the church is almost like getting your your birth certificate, acknowledging that you have been born into the church just as you've been born into America, for a first-time believer, it's a recognition of admission. Uh, but it is important to, to recognize it's not exactly admission for a baptized child. It's more of a recognition. Okay? Uh, letter I, top of page 186. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen shows that parental federal representation makes children holy in the visible church. See, the issue is, says, you know, Uh, your children would not be holy except for the fact that you're a Christian, he's arguing. In the context, can you stay married to a non-Christian, right? And he's saying, yeah, you should stay married to a non-Christian if they want to stay with you. You're you're bound to. But don't worry, that doesn't mean your child is unholy. 
Because you are a Christian, you represent the, the child sufficiently to be considered holy and part of the church, okay? Well, holy, representatively, right? Not that the child, we know that the Bible teaches that we're all natural born sinners. That's why we all need Christ. But representatively, in the covenant, if a child is born to at least one believing parent in the church, they can be baptized. But here's the other thing. They may not be baptized if they don't have Christian parents. So you don't see me doing what a lot of liberal churches I used to go to do. We don't, who's that family getting their child baptized today? I never saw them in my life. And after the child's baptized, you never see them again. But they think they're supposed to baptize their children because they think, that's what really particularly gives it a bad name. No, they cannot have their child baptized if they're not in a visible church membership. That's for members of Christ's church alone who have the sign themselves and have been, are committed in bringing their children to church. I've said to my sisters for a year, why do you ask me about baptizing your children? I wouldn't baptize your children unless you're a member in the church, a visible church. And I say, are you planning to raise them in the church? Because you don't go to church. You see, that's where we have a faulty idea of baptism, and I'll, I'll get to that. Letter J. But I want to point it out, like, you know, on the other side of things, if the child doesn't have the privilege of being born into the visible church with at least one believing parent in covenant membership, they may not be baptized in a church. Okay? Pray for them that they come to the Lord, or the parents do. Letter J. If Jesus says, quoting Psalm 8 in Matthew 21, 16, specifically verse 2, which we sang tonight, and I, I gave you a review of, if Jesus says... Uh, quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, that God ordains the praise out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, certainly those nursing infants can be baptized and recognized as members of the covenant community. How could we say Psalm 8, verse 2, that they can be singing to the praise and strength of the church, but they may not be recognized as part of the church, which is what baptism means, right? As well, the command to circumcise covenant children was to be done, quote, forever, it is so done through the New Testament, the new covenant transformation of it into paedo-baptism. Otherwise, we probably still need to circumcise our boys for religious reasons, right? We don't. That principle, that, that sacrament needs to continue forever. But now it's baptism. It's transitioned into baptism. Letter K. Just as there is no explicit command to baptize only adults in the scriptures, there is no explicit command or example for women to partake of the Lord's Supper. But we deduce it. Women can take the Lord's Supper, but you don't have an explicit command for that. It's understood and deduced. As well, the gospel always expands in the New Testament. Just as the Passover feast is now shared with Gentiles as the Lord's Supper, so too baby girls now receive the new covenant sign, which to me, with my first two children, was really significant to me, that I get to baptize my girls. I get to mark them with the sign of the covenant. And now I have another girl in February and mark her with the sign of... I'm already thinking about it. I get to mark her with the sign of the covenant. To see this understood and implied... Uh, Old Testament carryover of the New Testament transition, see again Colossians 2, 11 to 12, with 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and Philippians 3, 3. And we, we looked at those already a little bit in the notes. Letter L. Remember only Ishmael, the child of the bondwoman, was there when circumcision was given by God to Abraham in Genesis 17. Abraham knew that Ishmael was not a child of the promise, that is, a true believer. He was not going to be uh, what Isaac would only be. And yet he rightly circumcised Ishmael with all his household. Isaac, the child of the promise, didn't come until much later. 
But when he was told to circumcise the children, he circumcised the child that he knew wasn't uh, going to be the invisible church, so to speak. But outwardly, we recognize the children have a right to the sign and, and to be raised in the church. The sign of baptism on covenant children does not get... I want to highlight this, children especially, okay? The sign of baptism on covenant children does not guarantee head for head that each child is truly a Christian. This is against federal vision in the new perspective on Paul, which they dealt with a lot when I was in seminary. I don't hear people talking about it so much, but it was a big deal when I was in seminary. Yet even Jesus treated the visible church as such, while he knew all their hearts, he administered the Lord's Supper even to Judas. All right, now when I was reading Thomas Watson, I was reading ahead for next week, he doesn't think Judas was, he doesn't think Judas was receiving the Lord's Supper. He thinks he left before the Lord's Supper. Aaron, um, uh, excuse me, George Gillespie in his book, Aaron's Rod Blossoming, he also goes out of his way to try to argue that Judas did not receive the Lord's Supper. Those are both guys that I consider heavyweights, and I do disagree. Uh, I know Dr., uh, Dr. Bacon doesn't think so. I give you Psalm 41.9, quoted in John 13, verse 8, to prove what I think proves uh, that Judas would have partaken. And so what's significant about that? It's the same reason I preach to you, and I don't head for head try to single out who I may or may not think is a Christian. I don't start worrying. I don't worry about that with you guys. But, you know, it's the same reason when I serve the Lord's Supper. I speak to all of you. I can't know for sure who is who in, in Christ. And Jesus can address the group and say the things he said. And it doesn't contradict what he knows as the son of God, that Judas will betray him. All right, so he serves someone the Lord's Supper because they're part of the visible church. And until he betrays, there isn't any reason that he's not supposed to. We serve even now with a credible profession of faith. Right? Um, letter M. Now, if you really want to get into that, we can give a class to that and you can make me try to prove it more, okay? But if it interests you, go ahead and look at those scriptures, see what you think. I am disclaiming some pretty significant theologians don't think I have the right take on that. Okay, letter M. Infant baptism of covenant children was always the practice of the early church, and rebaptism re as adults was only introduced by the Anabaptists in Germany in A.D. 1637. Wait to see what Thomas Watson says about them. <laughs> but uh, people don't recognize this. People think, oh, you're Roman Catholics. No, the fact that we, just because we believe in the Trinity, so does the Roman Catholic Church. We don't throw it all out with the bathwater. I'm having a little fun with that. I have an article at the end I'm going to reference on that. But just because the Roman Catholic Church gets some significant things wrong, we don't deny they have the Trinity right. And we don't have to stop doing the Trinity, right? Just because they do a lot of things wrong doesn't mean infant baptism is wrong. And it was what the church did until uh, the 1637. The church always did this. It started to stray with the Anabaptists. But that was always what the church did. That is significant church history. We could spend a lot of time on it. I won't. But uh, study it. And by the way, we got a lot of articles on our website if you want to study that topic of church history. Okay? Uh, letter N. Baptism does not represent our faith response, but it represents God's promise to be faithful to us to be his, the Westminster Shorter Catechism 94. Baptism is not about our faith, it's about God's faithfulness. Just as the Lord's Supper is not about our faith, but it's about God's faithfulness. It's to strengthen us in the faith, but it's about God. It's not about us. It's about us in relation to God's faithfulness to us. That's what the sacraments are, okay? That's why they assure us and strengthen and encourage us. 
Uh, letter O, recognize that New Testament baptisms of responding adults highlighted are first-generation Christians, or they are the first generation of the New Testament church taking on the new signs of the covenant with their children. You've got to recognize that. The adults being baptized is because it's the first time in their family. But if they had kids, them too. And then as the next generations have their children, it's understood they would be being baptized. Uh, letter P. Note that in Luke 1, 41, John the Baptist leapt within the womb of Elizabeth in response to Jesus in the womb of Mary. I mean, if we want to try to say the children don't want to know anything, well, I mean, I, I recognize this probably, I don't know if I should say supernatural, but look, John, before he's born, responds to Jesus before he's born as the tummies are close while the mommies are talking. Let's not underestimate what a child can know because God can give faith to anyone at any time. Now, I'm going to get into a few things related to that in a moment. Here, R.C. Sproul's words are important to consider. Saving faith involves a certain level of understanding that, presumably, young infants do not have. However, they can have the grace of regeneration, where their heart's disposition is changed, and they are redeemed from the power of original sin. The merit of Christ can also be imputed to them without expressed faith. Though infants are too young to process or articulate it, faith is in the heart of the regenerate, at least in seminal form. That means seed form. Now remember, uh, oh, sorry, I'm not going to, I think we talked about this in some other notes, so let me stay on the notes here. Uh, top of page 187, section 5 of chapter 28. Although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, here you go, Rachel, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. There's your answer. No, baptism is not an issue of needing to have it to be saved. We're going to have another statement said, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Uh, but it's not an issue if you're not saved, right? There could be some unusual circumstances why someone's not baptized um, but notice they say it's a great sin not to actually in the same question it's a great sin not to baptize or to baptize your children but it isn't an issue of salvation that's important um, now uh, Rachel you took this class when you were pretty young so it's been a while but what I do want to remind everyone is you've got this booklet I want you to remind you those questions are usually all in here through all of the chapters on these topics because that's what the confession of faith intends to be, answers for these kind of great questions. And uh, so don't forget to keep going back to your standards, review them regularly. They have the scriptures that go with them. And then I you know, like to blab about it too. So you have so many of these answers there. And I'm delighted that you're asking them, but I want to remind you because it's been a while. Okay, um, so let me explain section five. It is a great sin, the confession says, not to baptize professors of the true religion and their children. Okay, hold the phone. People don't like it when we say, well, look, we've got to study this. Yeah, you do need to baptize your children. and They're used to just getting to do whatever they want, you know, sadly in a lot of Presbyterian churches too. Um, but our confession says it's a great sin not to baptize. So we can't just take that lightly. We have to try to disciple and teach you why you should. And pray the Lord sends Berean spirits who actually study with us. To date, no one has that's left over it. They just try to tire us, wait us out, become such a part of it, never get around to it. And then they realize, 
oh, you're going to still have to talk about this with us. Next thing you know, you get a Dear John email, if you get anything, right? Um, it's a great sin not to baptize. No, it's not an option. There could be some extenuating circumstances about why it is. It's not an issue of saving you. I'll go on to say, uh, the New Testament does not envisage a person as a Christian who has not been baptized. Uh, that's Roland Ward. So the, the Bible doesn't conceive of a Christian who's not baptized, but it isn't something that saves. Notice the Westminster Larger Catechism 167 says, we need to improve our baptism to our own benefit. We all need to be looking back to our baptism. That includes you covenant children, and remember what it means. Also, what do we see with Luther? We'll see it again in our notes tonight. Luther uh, mentioning a, a lady that said this. I think he got it from her, just like he got something else from a lady. But it's in an article. I won't bring it up tonight. Um, some of you are remembering. But it seems, it seems like he gets a lot from the ladies in his congregation and says, well, I'm going to use that. You know, She says, I am baptized. When she doubts her salvation, when she is feeling attacked by Satan and she's tempted to sin, I am baptized. I mean, I am marked with the sign of being gods in Christ. It's pretty powerful. However, don't take it for granted, you see. Improve. Remember what it is. Apply it in your lives. Uh, baptism is not indispensable for regeneration, grace, and salvation. For instance, the thief on the cross would be a good example. The thief on the cross is not going to be able to be baptized, right? He's about to die. But Jesus, today you'll be with me in paradise. So it's not something required to be saved. By the way, there are some people who really push the adult baptism thing. And frankly, Abraham, let me remind you because it will be relevant. They actually don't make a distinction between being saved and baptism at the same moment. Big problem. Thief on the cross, I guess, can't go to paradise, right? But if it's so connected to your faith response. Um, as well, baptism does not guarantee that all who are baptized are, quote, undoubtedly regenerated. We're not saying that we guarantee head for head we can know that everybody's saved. This is against the belief of baptismal regeneration of the Roman Catholic Church and its other modern manifestations. Now, I have this memory also I'll share with you briefly. I'm uh, living with my good friend, Scott Offhammer. You remember he came out for my marriage with Fernanda a couple of years ago. Oh, more than a couple now. <laughs> Time has moved. I lived with him in Buffalo for a year. He went to university at Buffalo. I went to Buffalo State College. Good friends. We knew each other through Campus Crusade for Christ Ministry and did a lot of music together. He introduced me to Christian music, actually. Um, and uh, he... Uh, and I wanted to live off campus because I did not enjoy that experience in the dorm. I won't bother you with the reasons why. He, we, ha, we, we look for one more roommate to cover the costs of renting. This, we need a third roommate. And we put out a, a flyer on campus. We're looking for a non-partying, non-smoking, non-drinking non person to share apartment with us. Oh, they flooded us with... No, we got one call and he was a Muslim. And he lived, for, his name was Ashraf, I still remember. And uh, lots of interesting stories I could tell you. A nice guy. Uh, lots of interesting stories, nonetheless. But this is the story I want to share. He had a friend visit with us one night. And he was talking with us. And we were talking about different things. It's interesting, the story of Noah in the Quran is not the same. But uh, he talked about doubts about Christianity and this religion and the practices. Because he says, you know, his mother was a Catholic. No, excuse me, his grandmother was a Catholic. I think Italian. And she was so concerned to get him baptized. And she did get him baptized and said, I've done my job. That's not what we're teaching, folks. Okay? <laughs> that, the baptism, is, it doesn't save the person. 
You can't, I mean, it's important to do, but it has to be in the context of the covenant and the faith of the parents. And by the way, uh, the person, our neighbor who died recently, as I was driving her, uh, you know, they're not going to be hearing this. As I was driving her to her blood draws for chemotherapy, uh, one time, you know, talking with her, I was giving her materials, gospel materials from her church every week, turning on her program on the radio because we were always driving at that time. Don't think she knew the Lord. But she did bring up that, oh, yeah, when I met my husband, we figured we have to talk about, well, where are you? Oh, I was baptized Presbyterian. I think he was. And she was baptized uh, uh, Anglican, I think. And so they said, oh, okay, so we're good. They, I don't think they were churchgoers. I don't think they really ever even talked about Christianity. But so we're all good. We're all going to heaven. That's what she said. And I said, no, baptism doesn't save us. I wish I had more opportunity to have shared more. But that's the scary thing. We don't want any of you thinking all you have to do is baptize and go your merry way and baptize and saves you. Uh-uh. <laughs> okay? It's not necessary. And also it doesn't save. It's a sign, remember what we studied in sacraments, of the things signified. Okay? Um, section 6, middle of 187. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto them, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. The time of the baptism is not significant. It's significant that they are part of God's church and what it means to you and your seed. Okay? So it's, it's not a big problem if a child is baptized before they can grow into the understanding and knowledge of it. Okay? i got a couple of good quotes and footnotes I will share with you briefly. Related to Westminster Confession of Faith 27, Section 3, baptism is not dependent on the element It's not dependent on the water to be effectual, although we have to use water. The time is administered. That's not what it's dependent on, nor administering person of the church. So if I baptize somebody in this church and I end up proving to be a heretic later, your baptism is not invalid. Okay? I won't get into that a lot because I covered it in the first class. It is effectual. Baptism is effectual because it is God's ordinance by the Holy Spirit upon his elect. For God's elect, it's it's actually effectual. Roland Ward points out that, quote, the reformers and the Westminster men held to the validity of Roman Catholic baptism, but not to the lawfulness of receiving baptism from a Roman priest. They wouldn't tell you you should go get baptized by a Roman priest, but if you've grown up in the Catholic Church and now you're going into the Reformation, they did not require to be baptized again. Now, I want to bring you down to a footnote because this is controversial. In the Reformed and Presbyterian circles, there's a lot of debate on this about whether you should accept a Roman Catholic baptism or make them get rebaptized. Now, if you're not baptized in the proper Trinitarian form and not a, a, a number of things that are qualified, uh, if you're coming in as a Mormon-only baptism, we're going to rebaptize you. you know? uh, if you've never been baptized, you know, uh, if your father baptized you with a garden hose, we're going to rebaptize you. you know? But otherwise, we, there's a reason for this. But uh, I want you to know that our presbytery, I can't say I know for sure about the denomination as a whole, but I know our presbytery favors not allowing 
a Roman Catholic baptism. So most of our churches in our presbytery would require you to be rebaptized if you're Roman Catholic. Our book of church order allows for our view. And by the way, we didn't know what we thought. We studied it as a session years ago, and, and we studied a lot in Charles Hodge's work. This is a historic. He swayed like almost a whole presbytery, which was huge at that time. He says, wait a minute, what are you doing? All of a sudden, you don't want to baptize people. You don't want to count a Roman Catholic baptism. The church has always in the Reformed Church accepted this. And it's important you don't just all of a sudden do something different, frankly, because it's out of ignorance. Okay? Uh, and I'm not wanting to claim ignorance on people, but you know we got to recognize that there's a great history here. So our session, we pause. When the church history does something all the time, we pause and study it carefully before we just decide to, to change on it. There's probably a good reason for that. Okay? Um, and this in the next section of the confession is a lot of what we build our stance on. So if you're born, baptized in the Roman Catholic Church... We will accept your baptism. We would not agree that you should be baptized, but if you are, we would not make you be rebaptized. Okay? This is the standard practice of the Reformed Church. Um, I wrote an article on this, and then somebody sent me a book to try to change me. You have a question, Marie? Okay, can you take the mic? Do you mind taking the mic? If you really don't feel comfortable, it's okay. You're not willing? Okay, so if we can't hear it, can, can she hold the mic just so everybody can hear it? Okay. Yeah, we would encourage you not to do that because we would be trying to be consistent with our practice. I think you were also baptized Mormon, I think you said, right? Uh, we would not recognize that as valid. But. Oh, another church, yeah. Right, right. Olivia, can you keep the mic up, please? Under those circumstances, would I be allowed if I wanted to because of that? Well, the the Mormon baptism, we would require it, so that's kind of out, right? We would need to know more about the congregational church, um, and we'd want to understand it in relation to your parents if they were members of that church. Similarly, we'd want to understand that related to the Roman Catholic baptism. Let me say this. I'm not ready to answer your question directly because I feel like it's something I'm not sure we've thought about as a session specifically. Not requiring it, but if someone really requests it, I think I'd like to ask, can you keep talking about that with us? And it was the session. Let us think about it. Uh, but let me right now try to maybe persuade you. It's not necessary with the notes, okay? Um, and, uh, but don't consider it a done deal. I'm not comfortable answering that off the mic off the cuff on the mic, because I don't think the session is, has actually thought through that specific question. I don't think we anticipated it, okay? Um, so let, let me get back to you on that, okay? But let's get back to the notes here. I want to take you down to, uh, where was I? It's effect- Okay. 
Okay, Ward points out, Roland Ward points out, back in section six, the reformers and the Westminster men held to the validity of Roman Catholic baptism, but not to the lawfulness of receiving baptism from a Roman Catholic priest. So come down to footnote 559. I'm going to give you some more from Roland Ward. He's from Australia. Uh, he also shares the following from the French Confession 1559, which was written by none other than John Calvin. Okay? We condemn the papal assemblies. That means the Roman Catholic Church. We condemn them. Nevertheless, this is a confession. Okay, so in this, he's getting more specific, and it does inform our confession. As some trace of the church is left in the papacy, and the virtue and substance of baptism remain, and as the efficacy of baptism does not depend upon the person who administers it, we confess that those baptized in it do not need a second baptism. But on account of its corruptions, we cannot present children to be baptized in it without incurring pollution. So he says again um, that he doesn't really address the specific, but are we refusing to? And, and I don't think we've quite really thought about that as much. Usually when we tell people that, they seem satisfied. So let, me, let us think about it with you more. I'm not going to, we're Presbyterian, so I'm not going to make a declaration. Uh, that has to be a session discussion, okay? But uh, I'm glad you're here, glad you're asking the question. Glad you're taking it so seriously. So put that on your notes of something I think we'll remember. But uh, put that on your notes of something we need to talk about more with you, okay? I can see in your face you're kind of passionately hoping to force our hand on it. But uh, if we can have good conscience about it, I, I, we're certainly in the context of our presbytery that they would, I'm sure, strongly try to encourage us to if you're asking for it. I know that, okay? And we would certainly want to be mindful of that. But Because uh, the, there is a difference between requiring, right, and if someone requests to be baptized. So let, it, let us think about it with you, okay? And it's a great question. And uh, it's a good problem to have that you're asking that question that you're here, okay? Um, but for now, let me tell you why we don't require it. Uh, top of page 188. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Sorry, I, I didn't finish the notes. I went to the footnote. Um, go back to the last sentence of section 6 on page 187. Uh, but more pastorally, earlier comments on Section uh, chapter 10, section 3 are relevant and reassuring. Again, what you need to recognize is, and Maripa, I want to encourage you to think about this, the validity of what baptism represents is not dependent on the person or the church. It's dependent on the Trinitarian formula. It's, the Trinity, it's dependent on what is said and done biblically. And it is effectual because of the Holy Ghost. So if we did rebaptize you, it doesn't make you saved now. It doesn't make you more Christian. It doesn't really do anything for you, except perhaps appease your conscience. But it, what we're teaching is it's not dependent. You might determine later that you think, I'm a crazy heretic and you want to go to another church. You don't have to go be rebaptized. Because, I mean, in, in the Baptist circles, I know the standard practice is every time you join a church, you get rebaptized. But that's not necessary. And in that case, I think it's a, it's a big problem, actually. Because it's not, you have to remember what the meaning of it is, okay? But uh, let me get to section 7 here now. There's an overlap of discussion here. The sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered unto any person. So building off of what we said, it should only be administered once. You don't keep baptizing a person, okay? Because of its meaning and mode as different than the Lord's Supper, okay? Let me explain. Per Westminster Confession of Faith 27, section 3, and 28, section 6, if a baptism is rightly administered that is Trinitarian by a visible church, it is invalid to enforce rebaptism on transferring members. Baptism in any branch of the visible church represents a one-time admission 
to the Catholic, notice lower C, universal, visible church. Thus it should not be repeated, as that would communicate the person has not been a true part of Christ's universal body, and if so, should not have been partaking of communion. So we're kind of communicating if we rebaptize you, you these other churches you've mentioned you've been to, you really weren't a Christian is what we're saying. I'm not sure you want to say that about yourself. You've got to think about that. Okay? And you might be saying you don't think it's a real church. Now, you know, our confession, remember, says churches are more or less pure. We're really hesitant to suggest those things, perhaps inadvertently. Okay? Uh, top of page 188. As baptism represents our being born again by the Holy Spirit, we should only be baptized once as we are only born again once and for good. And again, remember, our baptism is not valid, significant to who did it or when it was done. So those are things I ask you to wrestle with, but please do take us to the mat and let's, let's see where we go with it, okay? <laughs> um, some closing thoughts from Thomas Watson. It's a lot, but I'm, I'm going to close with you, okay? And thanks for bearing with me. Next week, it's only the Lord's Supper, and I don't think we'll have quite as many questions. I think we'll breeze through it quicker. Some closing thoughts by Thomas Watson from the Ten Commandments, and I know some of you are saying, finally. Okay, in general, <laughs> I see you laughing. Uh, in general, baptism is a matriculation or a visible admission of children into the congregation of Christ's flock. The parent, in presenting the child to be baptized first, makes a public acknowledgement of original sin, that the soul of his child is polluted, therefore needs washing uh, from sin by Christ's blood. That should be from, not form. Uh, and spirit, both which washings are signified by the sprinkling of water in baptism. Two, the parent, by bringing his child to be baptized, solemnly devotes it to the Lord and enrolls it in God's family. And truly, it is a great satisfaction to a religious parent to have given up his child to the Lord in baptism. How can a parent look with comfort on that child who was never dedicated to God? Notice that's what he's understanding baptism is. The party baptized has, one, an entrance into the visible body of the church. Two, he has a right sealed to the ordinances, which is a privilege full of glory. Romans 9, 4. Number three, the child baptizes under a more special providential care of Christ, who appoints the tutelage of angels to be the infant's lifeguard. Baptism is a badge of adoption. And that's true for adults and children, right? Children are parties in the covenant of grace. Genesis 17, verse 7, Acts chapter 2, 39. Now that's what we spent a lot of time on tonight. He says, it is certain the children of believers were once visibly in covenant with God and received the seal of their admission into the church. Where now do we find this covenant interest or church membership of infants repealed or made void? Certainly Jesus Christ did not come to put believers and their children into a worse condition than they were in before. If the children of believers should not be baptized, they are in worse condition now than they were in before Christ's coming. Though the word infant baptism is not mentioned in Scripture, the practice of baptizing infants may be drawn from Scripture by undeniable consequence. And he references Acts 16.33. 
Though an infant understand not the meaning of baptism, it may partake of the blessing of baptism. That's something that I starred. Let me say it again. Though an infant understand not the meaning of baptism, it may partake of the blessing of baptism. Now remember, Jesus put his hands on the children and blessed them. That was a formal act. You can go see my preaching on that to argue. This is clearly related to baptism. Okay. Uh, Mark ten sixteen. A legacy may be of use to the child in the cradle. Though it now understand not the legacy, yet when it is grown up to years, it is fully possessed of it. If the number of God's servants, God calls them, in, calls them his servants, quote, he shall depart from thee and his children with him, for they are my servants, Leviticus twenty forty one. Therefore, children in their infancy, being God's servants, why should they not have baptism, which is the tessera, the mark or seal which God sets upon his servants? 1 Corinthians 7.14, and I didn't emphasize it tonight, but this is a very significant text for baptizing children. 1 Corinthians 7.14, it's deduced, it's a logical deduction. He says, Mr. Hillerson says, quote, that the children of the faithful, as soon as they are born, have a covenant holiness. Notice the word covenant. And so a right and title to baptism, which is the token of the covenant. Unquote. The ancient fathers were strong asserters of infant baptism. Notice he's saying this has always been what the church did, infant baptism. How far God has given up many persons who are for deferring baptism to other vile opinions and vicious practices is evident if we consult history, especially if we read the doings of the Anabaptists in Germany. Now notice, as I gave you in earlier notes, that's where it really started. And he says, if you pay attention to the way these people start to act and live, it's not a good testimony. Those parents who withhold from them this ordinance by denying their infant's baptism, they exclude them from membership in the visible church so that their infants are sucking pagans. Does anyone want to look at their child in the church and say, my child is a pagan? But if you don't mark him with the sign of being in the church, what else can you say about them? You'd be more consistent not to allow them in family worship until such time as they profess Christ and are baptized. Such as deny their children baptism make God's institutions under the law more full of kindness and grace to children than they are under the gospel. Which, how strange a paradox it is, I leave you to judge. Let us who are baptized labor to find the blessed fruits of it in our own souls. Now before I continue, we're, we're kind of transitioning here. He argues a lot of why children should be baptized. But now he's saying to you children who are baptized, and to all of us, whether we've been baptized as children or adults, what are you going to do with your baptism is really what matters now. Okay? By the way, um, the, the, the footnote 560 I circled, I really want to read it to you, but I'm going to have mercy and try to make sure I'm allowed to come back next week. I'm going to skip it, but I highlight that. You might want to read that footnote. It's really good. Okay, so now we're getting into what are you going to do with your baptism? Let us who are baptized labor to find the blessed fruits of it in our own souls, not only to have the signs of the covenant, but the grace of the covenant. Let's see it working out in your lives. Significance. And by the way, in the larger catechism, again, I think I said it was 166, there's a sermon in the series on that you need to improve your baptism. We don't just say, oh, I'm baptized and I go off my merry way. No, you grow in what it means. It's, it defines how you live in your identity. Okay. 
What is baptism of water? On to page 189. What is baptism of water without the baptism of the Spirit? Remember the sign of the thing signified. They're not the same thing. Many baptized Christians are no better than heathens. Such as live unsuitable to their baptism may go with baptismal water on their faces and sacramental bread in their mouths to hell. I remember hearing that quote before. Alex Suarez preaching his sermon to become a licensed preacher in Texas. That was profound. I talked about it with him afterwards. And when, he re- when I was talking about it with him, he almost cried. He literally had to keep himself from crying, thinking about those that perhaps he knows that may be going on their way to hell with baptism water on their faces. Luther tells us of a pious woman who, when the devil tempted her to sin, answered, Satan, baptizata sum, I am baptized. And so beat back the tempter. By remembering our baptism, let us be stirred up to make good of our baptismal engagements, renouncing the world, flesh, and devil. Let us devote ourselves to God and his service, to be baptized unto the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost implies a solemn dedication of ourselves to the service of all the three persons in the Trinity. It is not enough that our parents dedicate us to God in baptism. Now, I want you to hear this, children. You've heard me really emphasize you should be baptized. You have a right to be baptized and all that represents. But hear this, children, and hear it, everybody, children of God. It is not enough that our parents dedicate us to God in baptism, but we must dedicate ourselves to him. This is called living to the Lord. We should be ready to confess that holy trinity into whose name we were baptized. Thank you for staying through. I knew you'd like it. I want to highlight middle of the suggested readings. I give you a whole bunch of sermons I've preached on infant baptism and baptism. And there's probably more since I put these notes together. You can search baptism on our sermon audio page. You'll come up with a lot of stuff, including by Jeff Stuyvesant. Um, we have way more than these suggested readings on our website. We have a ton of stuff on it. Uh, if you want to look at it more. Uh, I also want to highlight uh, down towards the end, the third bullet point from the end of suggested readings, Old Princeton, Charles Hodge, don't throw out the Roman Catholic's baptism with its baptism water. That's an article I wrote for a series. And uh, I would ask you, Maripa, to read that simply as a reference point, and we'll reread it as a reference point. Um, uh, the, one, uh, the third from the bottom, you'll see the website link, and if it's helpful, I can send you the link in an email or a text, or I can print it for you if that's more convenient. But I think that would be a good thing for us to read and for us to reread as a reference point, okay? And actually, I do have a book in my office arguing against that article, and um, uh, uh, it's, I haven't read it yet, but I do have a book we could read to argue the other side of it. I don't think we'd be persuaded that we have to require it, but uh, whether we might allow it as requested... Uh, I think that's something the session needs to consider, and uh, we can talk more about it. But I'd like you to consider why it may not be necessary. But to know that it's not necessary, we'd have to confirm uh, were your parents members of the church that they did it. The Congregationalist Church would be a particular thing we want to focus on. Even that was after the Roman Catholic Church. It would almost seem to me we're probably going to argue that should take. But it depends on who did it, were your parents members, those things. We're going to want to think through those things. But read that article, please. We'll have it as a reference point for discussion. And um, I really look forward to it. I don't, I don't know what we're going to decide, but it, it'll be an important discussion. So thank you. Um, okay, next week, 
the Lord's Supper, chapter 29 of the Westminster Confession. Those of you who are following uh, for uh, coming into membership or graduating, notice the larger and shorter catechism readings and read the scripture references with them all, please. If there's an overlap, as there will be, feel free to skip it the next time it comes up in the catechisms if it does. But... Read that before next week so you're informed for the study. That's my intention. You would have read it already and meditated on it. You're coming informed to the discussion, okay? Uh, So it's only on the Lord's Supper next week. It should be a shorter study because I don't anticipate as many questions. It's definitely not uh, as much notes because this is not something we really have to labor to prove. It's more of a given and consistent amongst a lot of churches uh, other than... um, Well, it relates to what we talked about tonight. So I'm going to close. I want to thank you for your patience. Please come back. And uh, uh, thanks for the great discussion. And uh, next week, the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for uh, your sovereign grace and how baptism represents your sovereign grace, choosing us, marking us as yours. We are spoken of as adopted in the scriptures. Children can be adopted by a parent before they know or understand and marked with that certificate of adoption. So you mark us as adult or children with your sign of adopting us into the church in Christ. We do thank you that you are the God of us. We do thank you we can call you our Father and we can look to our baptism as a sign and seal of your promises. And we do thank you that you are the God of our children and that we can mark them as such and that we know that we are committed to raise them as such. And we pray you would bless your means and that they would grow in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord and the love of God, and that they would be able to say, as many do, I don't remember a day where I did not know Jesus as my Savior. I don't remember a day where I did not love him. We pray again that even in the womb, Juliana would be leaping at the voice of Christ speaking through the earthen vessel, just as John the Baptist did. And we remember John the Baptist later had a very important ministry on behalf of Christ. Lord, we pray you bless our children to grow and improve their baptism, not to take it for granted, but to be grateful for it. And Lord, that you would bless them all to truly have faith and that the sacrament would, uh, the sign would truly recognize the seal of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would have them be saved and know and grow in you and that we would all be thankful that you have marked us as your own. And thus, as we uh, grow, uh, we can partake of the Lord's Supper weekly to recognize that we have communion with God because of our union with him in Christ. Uh, Lord, we do pray for Abraham, especially as he's taking this class to graduate to communicate membership. See him through. Uh, bless Mama Fernanda to transfer. Bless Maripa as she's uh, working through and catching up, having been new to us. Pray you would bring Josh back. Bless Martin as well. Thankful he's here tonight. Bless him with uh, catching up with the class online. And uh, Lord, thank you for such such uh, sincere, zealous questions and interest of everyone. And uh, let us indeed uh, grow being sharpened by one another. And Lord, we do thank you for our baptism and namely in the Holy Spirit of which it represents. And we pray that you would help us by your grace and your spirit to improve our baptism all our life. And especially as it would help us fight against temptation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all your people, old and young, all baptized in Christ, say, Amen.